It's that time of the week. It's time for the Parsha's Hazinu podcast. It's time for the penultimate Parsha podcast of the fifth cycle of the Parsha podcast. I am in the Torch Center, and we are recording. The hurricane won't stop us. You know, I was thinking that I knew that the Yetzirah and the Satan are working overtime to try to stop the locomotive, the runaway train that is the Parsha podcast. I knew they were upset with the tremendous proliferation of Torah that is done by the Parsha podcast, but I never knew how far they're willing to go until today. That's right. The Yetzirah, the Satan, sent a hurricane to Houston in the hopes of torpedoing the streak, of ending the streak of the Parsha podcast. And they sent Hurricane Nicholas, which struck Houston last night. And this was a valiant effort to try to stop the penultimate Parsha podcast of the fifth cycle of the Parsha podcast. But it ain't happening. I'm sorry, Nikki. It's not happening. This will continue. With the help of the Almighty, we are in the Torch Center. The damage done to the surrounding area here is very minimal. Driving to the Torch Center this morning, I didn't see any damage on the street, with the exception of one traffic light that was not working. There was a lot of debris around. But it looks like we survived this one. The sun is shining. The kids are in school. Hurricane Nicholas has moved on. And the Parsha podcast endures. Now, it's a few days before Yom Kippur. And as is traditional, we want to ask forgiveness from all our friends and family. And as you know, I consider the Parsha podcast to be a big distributed family. So I feel like I have to ask for forgiveness from all of y'all. And I'm thinking about what crimes I'm guilty of. I'm certainly guilty of responding late to emails. And also I was thinking sometimes when I do respond to emails, I do it maybe a bit too flippantly without sufficient honor and respect and thought and contemplation for the question or issue raised. So please forgive me if I did that to you. I do believe that I have responded to every email sent my way. Sometimes it takes a while, but I try to get to every single one of them. If you happen to have sent me an email and did not get a response, it's either in your spam folder or perhaps, and this is an issue, some people have told me about this, perhaps you misspelled my email address when you sent me an email. As you know, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com, but that's a hard word to spell, so I'll simplify it for you. Rabbi is like rabbit with two Bs, but no T. And Walby, my last name, well, that's really easy to remember. Here's how you remember it. Walby is the same letters, the same five letters as the word elbow, but with the letters scrambled. So elbow, instead of writing it the way it's spelled, you go from back to front, you start with the W and then the O, but then you swap the B and the L, meaning that the L comes first and then the B. So you have rabbit minus T, elbow backwards with the L and B swap. So L and B the same way as elbow backwards, the L before the B at gmail.com. Easy as pie, so easy to remember. So this week is Parshas Ha'azinu. 
and we read the Song of Ha'azinu. This is one of the three songs in the Torah. We have the Song at the Sea, the Song of Miriam's Well, and the Song of Ha'azinu. And it's a really richly textured tapestry with all kinds of layered meanings and subtleties. And our sages tell us that it incorporates all of Jewish history. And it incorporates all of Torah. There's 613 words in the song, one corresponding to every mitzvah. And it's also arguably the most difficult portion to decipher because it's written so poetically and in such a nuanced fashion. What I want to do today is to bite off a small slice of this song and see what we learn. And we're going to read chapter 32, verse 11. And we'll discover, with the help of the Almighty, that there is a lot for us to unpack. So this is the beginning of the song, and it's speaking about the special relationship that the Almighty has with us. So starting from verse 9, For Hashem's portion is His people, Jacob is the measure of His inheritance, we are the Almighty's portion, we are His representatives in this world. He discovered Him, i.e. God discovered us, in desolation, a howling wilderness, we were loyal to him in the wilderness. We, unlike Asaph and Ishmael, we accepted his Torah. We followed God into a place of desolation. He encircled us. He granted us discernment. He surrounded us with the clouds of glory. He made us wise and discerning with Torah. He protected us from all sorts of dangers like the pupil of his eye. And then we read verse 11. He was like an eagle arousing its nest, hovering over its young, spreading its wings and taking them, carrying them on its pinions. Now, what exactly is a pinion? I did not know what that word meant. So I looked it up in the dictionary and I found the definition to be very helpful. Opinion is the terminal section of a bird's wing, including the carpus, metacarpus, and the phalanges. That was very helpful. But all cunning aside, pinion is a fancy word for wings. So verse 11 here is telling us that the Almighty treated us like an eagle treats its young, like an eagle rousing its nest, hovering over its young, spreading its wings and taking them and carrying them on its pinions. How would we describe the special relationship that God has, or at least had, towards us? The verse in our parsha in the song of Hazinu, tells us that the Almighty treats us the same way that an eagle treats its eaglets. Now, don't get me wrong, as a patriotic American, this comparison resonates strongly. But still, what does it mean? What is the message what is all the symbolism here? So Rashi, of course, is going to guide us, as he's done since the very beginning. And he tells us, like an eagle rousing its nest. An eagle, when it wants to wake up its young and take its young from the nest on a journey, it does it in a very merciful fashion. It doesn't barge into its nest. Rather, it beats its wings and it jumps from tree to tree, and it makes soft noises, and it jumps from branch to branch in order that its young will wake up and they'll have the ability to be aroused in a soft 
and pleasant fashion. The eagle, when it wants to wake up its young, doesn't startle its kids. When it wants to wake up its young, it does so gently, softly, and with mercy. I actually Google this, and you can see how an eagle flaps its wings in rousing its eaglets. This is how God treats us. And the commentaries explain that the Jewish people in Egypt, in exile, were in a deep slumber. And the Almighty wanted to take us out of there. He wanted to take us out of the nest, so to speak, out of the comfort zone of Egypt, and bring us to Sinai, and bring us eventually to Canaan. He had to wake us up. How did he do it? How did he wake us up from the slumber of exile? He did it softly. He did it slowly. He gave us a year of miracles and plagues befalling Egypt. And he slowly unshackled us from the enslavement in Egypt. And like an eagle rousing its young, he made sure that we were ready to get up and begin this journey. The Almighty wanted to move us, but we were sleeping. And he did not aggressively wake us up. No, he did it softly and mercifully and gently. Okay, that's the beginning of this verse. The next Rashi tells us that when it says that the Almighty treats us like an eagle hovering over its young, what that means is that an eagle doesn't overwhelm its young. It touches them, but it almost doesn't touch them. It touches them very softly. So too, the Almighty, when he gave us the Torah, he didn't come at us all at once in, in one concentrated point. Oh no. That would have been too intense for the Jewish people. Instead, when the Almighty revealed himself to the nation at Sinai, he did it from four different angles, i.e. he distributed the full oomph of his power to four sides to make it more palatable and more acceptable for us, so to speak, his young. Okay, what does it mean that the eagle spreads its wings? Again, Rashi tells us, when an eagle wants to carry its young from place to place, it doesn't hold its young in its legs like all the other birds do. Why? Because all the other birds, when they carry their young, they're worried of the eagle, they're concerned about the eagle who soars above them, swooping down and grabbing their kids. And therefore, they hold them beneath them, so to speak, in their feet because of the eagle. But the eagle that flies so much higher, he's not worried about someone grabbing his kids from above. He's only worried about the archer from below. And therefore, if he were to hold his young in his legs, the youngs would be vulnerable to an arrow attack. So instead, he carries his young on his shoulders, on his pinions, saying, if the archer takes aim at us when we are in flight, when we are in journey, it's better that the arrow hits me and not my young. So too, the Jewish people, when we left Egypt, the verse says in Scripture in Exodus 19, the Almighty took us out like on the wings of eagles when Egypt chased after us and they were shooting projectiles at us the verse says that the Almighty's cloud of glory, so to speak, 
intercepted all those projectiles and missiles and saved the Jewish people. Again, this is the description comparing the Almighty's care of us to an eagle's care of its young. When an eagle wants to transport its young, it spreads its wings to place the eaglets on its shoulders. All the other birds are scared of the eagle, so they hold their young below them in their feet. But the eagle soars higher than all the other birds, and therefore the sole threat to its young are the archers. It places the young on its shoulders. It is willing to absorb the arrows on behalf of its young. So this whole verse, verse 11, is an amazing description of the very special relationship that the Almighty had with us at the Exodus, and the Almighty continues to have with us, and it compares it to the relationship of an eagle and its young. The Almighty wanted to take us on a perilous journey, but we were asleep. We were slumbering in Egypt. So he gently roused us. He awakened us slowly and gently and mercifully in Egypt. And when he revealed himself to us, he did it in a way that we can handle, not all at once. And when we were embarking on this journey, this journey is laden with dangers, but God is like an eagle. It can attack the other predators from above, and it will do anything to protect its young. This is a beautiful and heartwarming description of the Almighty's treatment of us. And the commentaries explain that this is not only in the past. The Almighty has not changed this mode of treatment. This is also the way he continues to treat us today. Now, the Arachayim, he adds more ideas over here. And he says that when the Jewish people are deserving of punishment, they need to be woken up. The Almighty does it gradually. He tries to get our attention with smaller messages before upping the ante. And he brings an example all the way back from the book of Leviticus, when someone is a sinner and they need to get leprosy, so Rashi there tells us, first the Almighty hits their house. It's very impersonal. It doesn't affect them per se. And then if they refuse to heed the message, the Almighty hits their clothing. It's getting closer to home. Until finally, if they don't listen at all, the Almighty ups the volume, ups the ante, and the leprosy that Saras hits their own body. The Almighty, when he rouses us, when he tries to get our attention, he does it softly and gently. And only if we don't heed that message does he make it a little bit louder and more aggressive. Moreover, says the Arachayim, another example of the Almighty's treatment of us being akin to that of an eagle treating its eaglets. When the Almighty tests a person, the Arachayim quotes from a Midrash, he does not test us in ways that we cannot handle. The tests are always manageable. And finally, like an eagle spreading its wings, availing itself to its young, the Almighty's right hand, so to speak, is always extended 
to accept those who want to repent. So this is the way that God treats us. And this is, of course, not just us as a nation, but every individual in their own journey is treated like an eaglet, is treated by the eagle. The eagle wants the eaglet to go on a journey. It's a potentially dangerous and scary journey. But the eaglet, the young, is asleep, blissfully unaware of the imperative to undertake this journey. But the eagle is gentle in how it gets our attention, softly, gently, mercifully, flapping its wings, jumping from tree to tree and branch to branch. Once we are on the wings, once we undertake the mission, the Almighty will protect us. He will absorb, so to speak, all the projectiles sent our way. Like the eaglets safely secured on their father's wings, we don't even know what kind of dangers our father is swatting away from us. And when there's a need for punishment, when the man needs to get our attention, it's slow and gradual and gentle. When there is a test from God, it's eminently doable. When we stray, God's, so to speak, hand is always extended, like the eagle to its young, to us to repent. This is how God treated us in Egypt, and this is the way he continues to treat us. I think this is very inspiring and heartening indeed. But here's the question. If God is like this all-protective eagle tending to its young, helping us navigate the journey of our lives, what's our job? What is left for us to do? He rouses us from our slumber. He is slow and gentle and merciful, doesn't come all at once. He flies us to our destination. He protects us from any threats. What's left for us? What do the eaglets have to do? Moreover, the verse in Rashi tells us that this mode of treatment was supremely manifested to all in Egypt. In Egypt, we were asleep. We had forgotten our mission, our mandate. We had given up actually ever leaving and being freed. We forgot who we were. And we forgot where we came from. We forgot about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the illustrious and glorious antecedents that we have. We became slaves to Pharaoh and knew of no other hope and destiny and future. We were in a deep slumber. But God, like a doting eagle to its young, did not startle us awake. He flapped his wings, so to speak. He pummeled the Egyptians into submission. He performed miracle after miracle over the course of an entire year. He spent a year slowly and gently and mercifully rousing us from our slumber. Yet, the Midrash tells us that, amazingly, 80% of the nation never woke up. 
only 20% of the Jewish people actually left Egypt. The other 80%, they stayed in Egypt. They were excised from the nation. How could it be that God did so much, took care of the eaglets, so to speak, with such care and devotion and gentleness, all to get us out of Egypt? So slowly and so gently and so mercifully, and he's doing all the hard work, yet 80% couldn't do it. 80% said we're staying in Egypt. I think there's a deep idea here. In Egypt, the Almighty treated us like the gentle eagle. He did almost everything for us. But we still had to wake up ourselves. We still had to hear the gentle cooing sound of this alarm clock trying to rouse us from our slumber. And you know what? Even after the eagle spreads its wings, the eaglets need to climb aboard those wings. Of course, the transportation was and is done by God. The dangers were and are thwarted by God. The tests are and were manageable. The punishments, should there be any, were and are slow and gradual. But even the eaglets need to do something. The eaglets need to hear the call of the gently flapping wings. The eaglets need to climb atop the pinions. Once they're there, once they undertake the journey, God, the eagle in the example, does all the heavy lifting, soaring high above all the predators, ensuring that none of the threats hit us. But we still have to do something. We have to be roused by the gentle wake-up call, and we have to board the Eagle Express. The great distance of the journey, well, that's covered by God. The great perils of the journey are avoided and sidestepped by God. But we have to want to undergo this journey. We have to be aroused to it. We have to take the first step of climbing atop those pinions. In Egypt, that was still too much for 80% of the populace. The notion of waking up from your slumber and recognizing that God wants you to undertake a journey with him as your guide, that idea was too daunting for four out of five of our co-religionists. In this journey of life, God promises to do the heavy lifting, provided that we do our share, provided that we want to make this trip. We have to be receptive to the notion of undergoing a scary, maybe terrifying journey with God. We have to be receptive to the idea of change and transformation. In the scope of the amount of work needed, of course, it's tiny to wake up, climb aboard the eagle. But even that tiny bit was too much for 80% of the nation. 
those eaglets stayed asleep in the nest and were savaged by our enemies and are gone forever. I think this very beautiful verse shares with us an amazing insight about really what we're doing here in life. All of us, of course, as individuals and collectively as a nation, we are tasked with a journey, with a personal odyssey. And the journey is long and dangerous, but we have God doing the absolute majority of the actual movement. He is treating us with gentleness and caring and mercy and compassion. He will rouse us gently from our slumber. He will actually transport us. But we need to take that small first step. We have to be receptive to the rustling sounds of the flapping eagle wings. We have to abandon the perceived comfort of the nest and embark on the frightening journey. We need to confront the grave and terrifying discomfort of change. We have to undertake the journey. But once we awaken and agree to leave the comfort and security of the status quo and we get on board the pinions, he will do the rest. He will take us where we need to go. He will protect us from any threats. He will both attack the other predators, the other birds in the analogy. He will absorb, so to speak, any arrows, meaning he will protect us from both known and unknown threats. And he will do all the heavy lifting until we arrive at our destination. But we have to take that first terrifying step away from the comfort of the cozy nest of our current situation. The Talmud in several places says the following, Habalitaher, if someone is coming to purify, Messiahinoso is aided from above. Habalitame, if someone is seeking impurity, if that's what they want, Poschenlo, they open it for them. They avail that to them. If we but seek purity, if we just hear the gentle wake-up call and get on board those wings and we want to undertake this journey, trusting in God who treats us with the same love and devotion as a father, then we will be aided from above. Once we take those first few small terrifying steps, the actual journey is easy. That small first step is hard and terrifying. We have to overcome stasis and complacency and inertia. We are really, really comfortable being asleep in the cozy nest. In Egypt, 80% chose to remain asleep. It's not easy to take the first step, but once we do, someone comes to become pure, someone seeks that, we are aided from above. I heard a wild story from my grandfather, a blessed memory, about a man that he met 
who was an immigrant to Israel from Russia and was a ger, was a convert. And the story goes that he was in the technical school in Russia and he was a pondering, contemplative young man and he's full of doubts. And he was always wondering, you know, how did the world get created? And what's the purpose of living? And what's it all about? And of course, in Soviet Russia, atheism was state mandated. So in hiding, he read Christian theology, but of course, it didn't calm him down until one night, he just burst into tears. He was just crying, seeking to find answers. And amidst his cry, he fell asleep. And then, in his sleep, a man with a long beard came to him and told him, in heaven they saw your tears and your doubts, and they sent me to tell you the truth. And then, this person, this figure in the dream, revealed to this, at that point, Russian Gentile, all the principles of faith about the existence of God and the divinity of Torah. And in the morning, this man woke up, managed to flee from Russia, arrived in Israel, and indeed converted. This is a story I heard from my grandfather about the man that he met. I was thinking that even a Gentile in a sea of atheism that was Soviet Russia, if he is habalatire, if he wants purity, if he takes that first step, he will be aided from above. There is a midrash that's almost universally misquoted. It's quoted most commonly like this. Make me an opening the size of an eye of a needle, and I will open up for you, Pesach, an opening, like the opening of a chamber, like the opening of a hall, of an auditorium. Now, the actual quote in the Midrash, in Shira Shirim Rabbah 5.2, the Amai says to the Jewish people, my sons, open up for me a small opening, a small crack of repentance, the size of the eye of a needle, and I will open up for you an opening that wagons and carts can enter. So the Midrash is misquoted, but the principle is the same. If we chisel a tiny hole in the thick walls of sin separating us from God, he will blast a hole in that wall the size of an auditorium. One tiny step for man will result in a giant leap in the relationship between us and the Almighty. He pledges to do all the work for us. He's going to rouse us. He's going to move us all gently and softly and delicately and mercifully. But we have to make that first move. We have to try to chisel that first tiny hole. We have to be someone who wants purity. We have to hear the call. We have to make the tiny puncture the size of the eye of the needle. 
We have to be willing to wake up and climb on the wings of the eagle. In the grand scale of the change that we're going to undergo, it's really infinitesimally insignificant. God, of course, is doing the lion's share, or maybe the eagle's share of the work. But we have to take that first tiny step. In Egypt, 80% just couldn't hack it. But if you think about it, we are the survivors. We are the descendants of the 20%. Our ancestors have demonstrated that we are capable of change. We are willing to abandon the cozy nest and get on board the eagle. We are willing to undertake the perilous journey. We were willing to follow God into the unknown, into the desolate wilderness. And God certainly kept his part of the deal. And for us, in our own lives, we too will be gently roused by God. And even today, God promises that if we take that first step, if we want the purity, if we chisel the small hole, he will do the heavy lifting. He again will keep his side of the deal. I was thinking, you know, we're a day or so before Yom Kippur. This is perhaps the most important takeaway of this upcoming awesome day of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day of immense potential for self-transformation. The journey that we can embark upon on this day is greater than what we can accomplish on any other day, maybe any other week. And again, the eagle will do all the heavy lifting. But we need to take the first step. Yom Kippur is about taking the first step. That first step could be the tiniest of moves. Traditionally, we're told to accept a very small resolution on Yom Kippur. Plant the smallest of seeds. Open up the smallest of doors. Crack the smallest penal size of openings. And God promises, you make an opening the size of the eye of the needle, and I am going to blast an auditorium size hole in this blockade. We have to wake up. We have to climb on board. His right arm, so to speak, is always perpetually extended to us, waiting for us to come home. If we make a genuine, sincere desire for purification, that will unleash an auditorium-sized opening of divine assistance. The Almighty set up everything. But we have to get on board. We have to hear the calm, soft, pleasant alarm of God stirring us awake. We have to be willing to embark on a terrifying journey away from perceived safety and security. The journey indeed is long and laden with perils, but that's not our problem. Once we are securely fastened on those pinions, the rest of the journey, well, that's not on us. That is on God. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. 
And this is a little bit of a complicated question with a few moving parts. But if you're still listening, you can handle it. I want to contrast the final Rashi comment in this week's parsha. I want to contrast it with the final Rashi comment in last week's parsha and see if there is a contradiction. The end of our parsha, the Almighty tells Moshe to ascend on Mount Nebo, Mount Nebo, Har Nebo, and gaze upon the land, see it from a distance, Vishama lo savo, and there you will not come. You will not enter the land that I am giving to the Jewish people. Says Rashi, the final Rashi of our parsha, Vishama lo savo, and there you will not come. Veyadati, and I know, says God, Ki chaviva hilacha, it's beloved to you. And therefore, I'm telling you, ascend, witness, you can't cross, but I'll let you see it. At this late stage, it's Moshe's death, and he still covets entering the land, but the Almighty says, no, you can enter, I'll let you see it, but you cannot enter, even though it is beloved and cherished by you. That's the final Rashi in our parsha. The final Rashi in last week's parsha, parsha Vayelach, it's actually the penultimate verse, 31-29, but there is no Rashi comment on the final verse of last week's parsha. So in this verse, Moshe is telling the nation, really the elders, I know that after I die, you will become corrupt, you will deviate from the path that I command you, and all the bad things will befall you. I know that the nation, right now you're in, in good shape, but I know that after I die, things are going to go a bit awry and askew. And Rashi asks a question. Wait a minute. Moshe is saying that after he dies, the nation is going to become corrupted. But the truth is that for the entire tenure of Joshua, Moshe's successor, the nation did not deviate from the path. Quotes a verse, Vayavdu Hamas Hashem, the nation worship God, call Yimei Yehoshua, all the days of Joshua. So why is Moshe saying that after I die, after Moshe dies, the nation is going to become corrupt? The truth is, it wasn't after Moshe died, it was after Moshe's successor, Joshua, died. So Rashi tells us, from here we learn that the Talmud, the student of a person, is as beloved to them as themselves. And therefore, calls Manshi Yeshua Chai, so long as Joshua's alive, it appeared to Moshe like he was still alive. Moshe indeed is going to die now, but there's life after death. Moshe is still alive in his student. Moshe is alive vicariously via Joshua. So here's the question. If Moshe felt like he was still alive so long as Joshua was alive, why was he so eager to enter the land? After all, he did it vicariously via Joshua. If Moshe is still alive within Joshua, why is he unsatisfied? Why is he still so determined and really obsessive about entering the land? Is that a good question? Is there a contradiction between the final Rashi comment of last week's parsha with the final comment in this week's parsha? If Moshe is still alive in Joshua, 
Why is he so obsessed still to enter the land himself? If you have an answer, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Now, last week, we asked the kind of question that I feel like you have to sit with for a while, you have to ruminate upon for a while. We discovered that there were three things that were a two-person job for Moshe and Joshua. The war with Amalek, joint effort, Moshe and Joshua. Designating cities of refuge, Moshe does three, Joshua does three. The song of Ha'azinu, done in concert, in tandem, a duet between Moshe and Joshua. And the question was, what do they have in common? Now, I want to reiterate, I think this is a really interesting question and one that I plan on keeping on the back burner because I have this sense that maybe it can develop into something bigger. But I want to share with you an idea submitted by my brilliant friend Noah. Now, as an aside, Noah hosts an amazing Parsha podcast called L'chaim L'chaim. He shares lessons from the Parsha, and he also confided within me that sometime next year, he plans on doing lessons from the Haftorah as well. So give it a listen. L'chaim L'chaim. I enjoy it. I'm sure you will too. So here's what Noah wrote to me. He said that all three collaborations are things that outlast Moshe. The cities of refuge were in existence after Moshe's death. The war with Amalek is still ongoing. And Ha'azinu is a harmony of past, present, and messianic times. So this is an interesting observation that Noah shares. Truth is, I had a similar and related thought that I want to share with y'all. So we talked about Moshe and Joshua doing things together. It seems to me that in these three areas, there is a third member of this triumvirate, and that's Messiah. The final war of Messiah, the final triumph of Jacob, will be Jacob over Esau, Messiah leading the Jewish people, over Amalek. In fact, the definition of the Messianic era is when God is fully ensconced on his throne of glory, and that can only happen after Amalek is vanquished. See the final Rashi in Parshas Bishalach, Exodus 17, 16. The cities of refuge, so we read earlier in Deuteronomy, that they're actually supposed to be nine, three designated by Moshe, three by Joshua, and three in the future, in the Messianic future. The song of Ha'azinu is the Torah's most direct description of the Messianic future. So it seems to me that these three leaders of the people are all partners in these three nationwide missions. Perhaps we can even suggest that these three are like the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of us as a nation. And each, so to speak, is tasked with overseeing one of the three phases of our nation's storyline. Moshe is the leader of the people. When we get out of Egypt, we get out of the morass. And he, of course, is in charge with equipping us with the tools, the Torah, needed to accomplish our mission. Joshua is about getting us into the land, which is our ultimate destiny. And Messiah is about establishing Permanence in the land and permanence as our nation living up to our mission. Now, of course, we still need to explain what makes these three tasks 
so central to these great leaders, maybe we can suggest, and again, I'm just suggesting this, but of course, the sense is there's still food for thought here. Maybe a leader needs to provide three themes for the people. The leader has to fight a Amalek. They have to fight on behalf of the nation to help them overcome their enemies and help them accomplish the national mission of our people, which is to defeat Amalek and to restore God on his undisputed throne. A leader has to provide safety and comfort and security akin to the city of refuge. And finally, a leader has to provide the people a framework of how God behaves towards us relative to our behavior and what exactly we need to do to accomplish and to conclude this great task entrusted to us and to our ancestors. Of course, this is all speculation. I think the question itself is the real takeaway. We still have some food for thought. So that's that. We survived Hurricane Nicholas. We're in the Torch Center. Did you enjoy this Parsha podcast as much as I did? In my opinion, maybe this was one of the best ones yet. Do you disagree? Do you agree? Do you have any message you want to share with me before Yom Kippur? Send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Have an amazing, uplifting, meaningful, productive Yom Kippur. Have an easy fast. May you merit to repent and earn purification on Yom Kippur. Have an amazing week and have an amazing, sparkling Shabbos. This Shabbos is a very special Shabbos because it comes on the heels of Yom Kippur and it's the Shabbos that we are most cleansed from any hint or scintilla of spiritual contamination. Have an amazing Shabbos. Have an amazing Yom Kippur. Have an amazing week. And please, God, we will get together yet again for the final episode of the fifth cycle of the Parsha podcast with the help of the Almighty. Thank you for listening. And best regards and love from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas.